Welcome to the Two Cent Dad podcast, where we interview dads to discuss their journeys of intentional fatherhood while doing work they care about and living a life of purpose. I'm your host, Mike Sudik. And so I would go and negotiate with my spouse and say, you know, I just need to work on this and, you know, she'd understand and every now and then she'd give me a hard time, but I could always negotiate with her and get more work done. Um, once you have kids and it's your duty to actually, you know, uh, to, to um, take care of the kid, you can't negotiate with a crying baby. When the baby's hungry or when the baby's crying, you have to go out and, and kind of handle the situation. A special episode today as Ash Moria joins the podcast. He is the author of Running Lean and Scaling Lean. He is a expert on lean thinking, lean methodology, lean consulting. So special episode. Let's jump right in with Ash. Well, hey, welcome to the podcast. I am here with Ash Moria, um, who is a uh, founder, speaker, uh, best-selling author of the books Running Lean and Scaling Lean. Um, so I saw him speak at the Business of Software conference and found out he had two kids, so I had to have him on the podcast. Um, so I, I am just curious to hear your journey, Ash, as someone that is a public speaker, has been doing this for um, quite a while now, but going from that kind of shift you know, to having kids. But I guess I would I would love to hear first off, um, what do you tell people that you meet at a dinner party what you do? So if someone just doesn't know you and they ask you what you do, what do you usually say? Well, first, thanks for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, but that's always a tough one. And I've always tried to come up with that perfect, you know, elevator pitch or the intro. And I find that it's so it's so relative depending on who you're speaking to. And so I often will give them a very high level answer. And if people would be interested, I go deeper. So something that I, if I'm, you know, if I'm in a dinner or if I'm doing even just uh, getting an Uber ride, people often ask me what do you do and I might just say I'm an author. And that's a great conversation starter because that people say, oh, you know, what do you write about? And I might say I write business books. And then if they're interested, they'll go deeper and I'll get more into what I, what I, what I do. Uh, but otherwise, we just leave it and we go on to other things. So I, I, I tend to not get overstressed about trying to get that perfect line because it's, as I said, it's so, so, uh, it's so dependent on who you're talking to on the other end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as someone that's you know, recently read Running Lean and has, have, have um, really bought into the principles and seen a lot of fruit from the principles, I'm just curious if you could kind of tell us a little bit of the story about writing the book um, to set a context, uh, which has now you know, gone on to be a, a you know, bestseller. Um, just kind of give us a little bit of the background of that and, and then how that evolved from, from originally getting into it. Yeah, and so even even before the author label, I used to just call myself an entrepreneur, and which I am kind of very true to this day. Um, and so I will just come out and say that writing a book, you know, being an author, speaking publicly was never in my plans. Actually, my mom particularly is still amazed to see me go out and speak because I was the closeted tech geek that would never go out and do any kind of speaking because I just shied away from all that stuff. Um, but I found along the way that things that began to bother me were not so much that some of my products were working and not, but that the time I was taking to go through my, the cycle time between ideas was just very long. And so I began to introspectively look into my own kind of journey and found some patterns that I felt were troublesome. One of them that I talk about a, a lot is how I, and then I found everyone else does the same thing, is we prematurely fall in love with our solution. Um, we start building and hoping and when we launch, that's when the real learning begins. And so there are some techniques for, for short-circuiting that. So that's kind of how I got 
started, but I didn't start by writing a book. I started by sharing some of my kind of lessons learned on a blog. Um, it was good timing. It was around the time when the Lean Startup was coming out. And so what I was saying and, and what what the community was saying kind of gelled together very well. And so I kind of joined in the conversation. And then that turned into a book and then in some ways changed the trajectory of what I was doing. So I used to be uh, more a tech founder. I was running a business that was more around um, large file sharing, you can say, kind of like Dropbox, but pre-Dropbox. Um, and then now what I'm doing is just completely different. I work with entrepreneurs, I speak, I write books, uh, we build software for entrepreneurs. And so quite, quite different in that respect. So tell me about that, like, um, as you've made the shift from a founder to be almost like a, an advisor in talking about this, this um, methodology, and how have, you, how have you helped evangelize people to that and seen the light bulb go off, you know, as people are like, oh, yeah, this is, like, great. Like, um, and have you then gotten more excited about it the more it's evolved and you've helped people and seen real-world real case studies? Yeah, so for me initially, I mean, I, I did this like a lot of people do for very selfish reasons, which is I was trying to get clarity for myself. So I was writing a blog, not for others, but really for me to get my thinking uh, kind of more solid. Um, and also in the hopes that others would come and say, this poor soul needs help and let's you know give him some advice <laughs> in the section. Um, but but that kind of give and take was, was very helpful. But then I began to realize that lots of people were making some of these fundamental Kind of, I call them mind shift mistakes, like the, the problem, not the solution, or falling in love with the solution, not the problem, and things like that. And so I began speaking, and as I started to do research for the book, I found that what I was finding with my own kind of journey was actually a lot more relevant to many businesses. And then I began to run some workshops because that was my way of learning about what to write. Um, I began to travel around the world and found that there were people all over the world that were running into the same kinds of things. And even though they spoke different languages and looked different, they all fundamentally were the same persona of the entrepreneur. And that to me was very empowering because even going back just a decade, I remember trying to do some offshore work and it was very hard even just communicating. And the world has changed now. It's easier to communicate um, with things like Lean, Lean, Lean Startup. We actually have a language of entrepreneurship and we can go out there and have very meaningful conversations. So those were some of the, the trends that got me very excited. And so in this new company, I decided I was not going to fall in love with the solution. So my previous one was about tech. Um, here I said I'm going to fall in love with the customer problem, which in this case I look at innovation or starting a new business or, or uh, building a successful product as all being that big problem. And I wasn't, I, I, even, even to this day in the company, we aren't, um, in, in the book business or in the software business or in the consulting business, we do anything and everything to kind of move that forward. So that's kind of a new perspective and it's been very rewarding in that sense. So that's, that's how I look at what we do. So when people ask me what we build, I say what we try to build or what we hope to build is a better entrepreneur. And if mm -hmm. we look back 10 years from now, um, we should be able to say these are the people we touched and as a result, you know, here's where they started and here's where they are today. And the tools that we put into play could be some of the software tools we have, could be content, could be videos, courses, you know, all, all that stuff is gay. Yeah, that's that's a good con a way to put it, you know, building a better entrepreneur. Um, you know, that segue is a good segue into why I wanted you to have on this podcast, which is all about fatherhood, because yep. you're a founder of a company, but you're also a co-founder of two kids. You have an eight-year-old <laughs> and a 10-year-old. Um, yep. So I'm curious, 
you know, how does, where's the overlap? I, I'm really interested in, you know, Elon Musk makes a comment like always going back to first principles, right? Which is a lot related to, you know, the lean canvas and, and a lot of the things that you say, which is starting with the problem, not the solution, but also yep. starting from kind of first principles. Have you seen some overlap with how you've approached parenting? I mean, you know, as that, have you made that shift and then you've had all these ideals and all this philosophy that you've then been out preaching to other people? Do you think there's some overlap with that first principles approach and, and how you're raising kids? And, you know, what are the first principles and how are you, how are you doing yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot that, that you learn. And that's why I think, you know, just... Parenthood in general is such a life-changing event, and I, you know, don't encourage people who aren't ready for it to jump into it because I mean, <laughs> oh, you just have to go have kids. Um, so we waited. My wife and I, you know, we were married. We waited five years, but there was, and we weren't even in in the least best interest. It's not like we were thinking about it. We just went almost, and it's funny how it happens. I think we we're kind of at the same kind of wavelength, but it was just one year. We were like, we are ready for kids, and mm-hmm. we just had our first uh, first child or daughter. Um, but the thing that I also tell people is that people sometimes ask me how I balance kind of kids and startups because that was also the time when uh, so my daughter was born in 2006. I was in kind of the midst of my previous company, you know, still doing a lot of startup types of things. And my, I began to write the book shortly after the, the running lean book, at least the beginnings of it and the blog was all happening. So how do, how do you balance all that? And so I tell people that I dedicate the first book running lean to actually my kids because what I learned from them is the true value of time. So before that, I was one of those kind of always busy entrepreneur. I would find time to work longer hours every chance I get. I was always thinking about work. Um, weekends were all game. And so I would go and negotiate with my spouse and say, you know, I just need to work on this. And, you know, she'd understand. And every now and then she'd give me a hard time. But I could always negotiate with her and get more work done. Um, once you have kids and it's your duty to actually, you know, uh, to to um, take care of the kid, you can't negotiate with a crying baby. When the baby's hungry or when the baby's crying, you have to go out and, and kind of handle the situation. And so that actually taught me that I needed to be a lot more efficient and productive with my time. So when I say the true value of free time is that I've gone from kind of wasting away my time. So I would look at time as a commodity where let's squeeze in as much work as possible and sometimes do a lot of meaningless work in the process to where now I actually carve out my day um, very, very methodically and very systematically around when I had, when I had my first, uh, first child, it was around kind of the sleep times and when I could get little pockets of time to actually do work. And I would actually spend more time thinking about what I was going to do than actually just jumping into busy work. And mm-hmm. I, would, I would attribute that for what I sometimes describe as right action, right time. So focusing in on those single dominoes in your business or in your, in your life in general, that if you would move, it would actually have bigger kind of ripple effects than just doing a lot of small, meaningless work. Um, so, so that's the first lesson that I got. And it was not even just interacting. So you, you know, I think you were asking kind of interacting with kids, but I was saying even without interacting with them, when you just have a baby or someone that you've got to care for, um, priorities change. And as a result of that, you can either kind of say, I can't do any work and throw your hands up in the air or embrace that constraint. And for me, the latter actually proved to be a gift because it allowed me to, even to this day, I, I do that um, disciplined approach of planning out my day. Um, and if I can do one thing early in the morning, it makes my day because I'm, I tend to be very accomplishment driven. If I spend a whole day and I've done a lot of, I've just been on calls, 
I don't always feel like that's productive. Sure, they can be productive calls, but if I get something done, I'm inherently a maker, so I need to create something or make something. And if I do that earlier in the day, then I'm happy and I can I can kind of live a productive rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think that is a it, it's a core tenant with with life after you have kids, right? You know, you're you're automatically have that constraint, and so you're forced to do things differently. It sounds like that's a that's a perfect overlap with a lot of the stuff that you you talk about with with the lean stuff and and saying okay you do have a finite resource of time so you need to spend that wisely and the the converse approach which is more widely accepted I would say is to just jump in and start doing things without having more of a planned out intentional way of going about it right um, no I think that's great um, would you say though like in your actual parenting styles like now that your kids are a little bit older. Um, you know, you're out of the infant stage, which is very, you know, time, time heavy and just trying to keep the new diaper on and, and the baby fed. Um, how, yeah. how has that affected your parenting? Um, yeah, so I would say that I've always, so I've, 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 I've grown up, you know, in a pretty, like I've grown up to Indian parents. If you know anything about Indian parents, they tend to be very heavy on the education side. So yeah. very structured and really a few tracks, you either go engineering or you go medicine. And then if you don't get into any of those schools, then you may have other options that they'll, they'll kind of discuss with you. Um, so I grew up in that kind of very rigorous type of schooling system. And I found just over the years that, again, the world has changed. We live in this abundance economy where we can learn almost anything. You look at what's happening with Khan Academy and just YouTube, you can, you can go and pick any skill and get good at it if you want to. So we actually don't have a shortage of knowledge. It's really kind of a, a lack of focus. We need to just focus in on what we want to do. And so I've really learned that about myself. So I went to school for electrical engineering. I worked in a power company for six months as an intern, and that was my the only work I've done for you know with my degree. Everything else is kind of self-learned. Um, the programming that I I know I I taught myself everything about business. I kind of taught myself. Um, so that to me has been something that I'm not. I'm not against you know rigorous schooling because I think what schooling teaches is is kind of discipline, but it also teaches you how to learn. But once you know how to learn, then you want to kind of have people to kind of explore. So very early on for us, we put our kids in a in a Montessori school because partly because we like the philosophy. Um, we actually found one in particular that was quite impressive here in Austin, where where I live. And we have had the kids in it ever since. And so for, for maybe some of the listeners who don't know kind of what the Montessori is, it's really kind of freaky. Like when my parents came to visit, they were at first a little bit concerned because it's, you know, kids essentially educating themselves. Like it's self-guided education. So if, if a child wants to do math, they just pick up math. And if they want to do some word kind of uh, puzzles, they go and do that instead. Of course, there's a guide. They don't call them instructors. But the point is that the kids pick their curriculum and the guide's job is to is to help them make sure they're getting a balanced exposure to everything. And they don't believe in tests, but they are like activities they do where they can tell whether people are whether the kids are are picking up these things. But it tends to be a very kind of independent, self-guided type of a learning philosophy, which I find that kind of matched both our values, my wife and, and us. And so we have that's something that we we still instill even at the in, at home. So it's not about you know, the helicoptering parenting style, which is just fill up activities for your kids and expose them to everything. Um, we actually let them do a few things at a time. And so I actually have something that I tweet every now and then that I tend to have only a few interests at a time because I believe in doing them well. 
Um, and I think that that's the same thing I like to see with the kids. So we, we leave them a lot of slack time. Um, so we don't fill up activities. We don't plan things for them. They're actually weekends where they're just sitting there by themselves, you know, with empty time saying, I'm bored. What do I go do? And they come up with things. And I think that is such a necessary, you know, that downtime is so critical for synthesis. That's where we take kind of what we have learned and, and kind of think of how to apply them in, in new ways. Um, so I think those are things that I've just learned from my own kind of lessons growing up that I try to create that space kind of in, in the kids as well and, and very, much, very much reflects in the parenting style. How do you think? No, I think that's great. I think um, what, how, how early did they start the Montessori? Yeah, so my daughter actually went through a number of – so they, they, my, my wife uh, went to work after uh, a few months and so we had them in daycare for a little while. But the Montessori was really probably when they were two years old um, was when they went and my daughter particularly went to a different school, which you know was a Montessori school. But the, the thing with Montessori is that there isn't really a, a trademark on it. So a lot of people say they're Montessori, but don't really internalize everything. So they took some of the things they liked, uh, but it was not you know, as as rigorous as this one is. And when I say rigorous, they actually follow kind of more of the philosophy. So we actually found the school kind of uh, when she was three, and that's when she started. And then my son just went in there when he was two and a half. Um, but for us, it was uh, we went and did an observation, and it was like this Zen moment. We walked in, and there was a you know a classroom where there were two adults, but they were sitting in chairs, you know, pretty much to our from from our perspective, doing nothing, you know, sitting there and observing the class. And these kids were just doing all this work and working in groups. And every now and then they'll have a question and they will come over to the guide and then she will point them to something else and they'll off they'll go. And everything was just operating at this, you know, as I said, zen-like kind of high, high efficiency mode. And of course, you know, there are probably times when the kids would be, you know, being, being kids. But we were just kind of so impressed with that that we, we decided we'll, we'll give it a try and we've been in the school ever since. That's great. How do you think that that – so you described before that though that like leaving slack time – not having all of their hours occupied. There's a direct analogy or overlap there with like how we work, right? I mean, how people are constantly inundated with not only information, data, but also like no free time whatsoever. So you right. get this ADD that's not only in kids, but in adults. Um, do you, did you see a lot of that? I mean, is that what drove you to the Montessori? Is that, do you then, were you then like, wow, this is exactly what I see with people that I consult with? <laughs> right. Well, so I didn't know a lot about Montessori when we first started. So I too went to a Montessori school. I grew up in, in Nigeria, by the way. So I went there, came in my early years. Uh, but it was, again, one of those pseudo Montessori. They were doing some Montessori-esque type of things, but not, not, not enough to be, you know, um, as, as, uh, as different as this one is. Um, but one of the things that I've I've seen is that I I find that Maria Montessori, the founder, um, tended to so the way she developed this is by studying how kids work, and I find that it is this emphasis on you know kids being a smaller version of the adults adult mind, um, and their mind develops differently, and so at different ages she has these different stages. You have to um, encourage different types of behaviors. So what's very interesting is that if you look at a typical daycare, they put all the kids together and they encourage them to play. Um, if you go to Montessori or you read the Montessori method, between the ages of three and six, kids are not very social. They're actually coming into themselves. They're kind of building their sense of self and they're really more interested in the physical world. And so in the Montessori classroom, they actually keep the kids a little bit separate, but give them you know, physical 
things to play with. So they're like physical learning materials that they go explore. Um, what's even more interesting is between the ages of six and nine, that's when they develop social skills. And if you look at traditional education, I don't want to kind of knock out, you know, people I, I, I respect, I went through a traditional education system, but if you go through, if you go into a traditional school, um, we put kids in a classroom and we tell them, you know, to stop talking to each other, you know, listen to the teacher because the teacher knows what's right. Um, and we, we start to kind of train kids that way. And the Montessori method is a bit different. So in, between six to nine, they actually encourage kids to form groups and they actually do reports together. They do projects together. They pick on the work. They kind of vote on things together. And the guides, again, are there to help. So I do find that it's a really, you know, looking at it from how work is done. You know, at, in latter years, I find that it's a great way to build collaboration skills, to understand differences, because, of course, everyone, even at, at the kid levels, you know, have differences, how to get your opinions heard, how to influence others. You're kind of learning all those skills, which are those soft intangibles. Um, I think it's so valuable to have. Um, the other thing that I like about, um, and I think, again, it doesn't have to be Montessori, but just in general, when I, when I, tr you know, I, I had the, the privilege of doing some lean canvas work with high school students because it's, it's gotten that far and this all came from the high tech world, but now we're seeing universities pick it up and even high school kids, um, and I, it may even go you know, to younger ages. But even when I work with them, um, the thing that I see very, that, that's, that's so, so powerful in young, young kids is that they have this playful attitude. You know, they aren't yet, you know, the, they aren't yet beaten, beaten down by the system. And what I mean by the system is we are often told, as I said in the classroom, that there's really one teacher, one authority figure that knows what's right. And there's really one right answer. When you take a test, you're going to be graded on whether you get that right answer or not. If you're an entrepreneur, you and I know that there's not one right answer. You can, you can solve a problem in many different ways and they could all be just as valuable and just as, as good. Um, so I think, again, in the education system, as long as we give kids, as long as we pique their curiosity and teach them how to learn, um, when they ask even us questions, we try to make it a bit more Socratic, which is, you know, we don't just give them the simple answer. It's like, oh, let's look that up or let's you know, go and pick a book, or let's go to the library, or let's, let's figure out how we can solve, solve this problem. And I think that is such a valuable thing to develop um, and just nurture in, in kids, because that's, that's, that just gets beaten out of them over time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's great. Because I think that uh, what you're describing, the, the, um, even like Socratic and, and how you're approaching that, is is even outside of Montessori, right? I mean, you can do yeah. that day to day. You can do oh, yeah. that in around your house, everything. Yeah. So in, in my work, if, when I work with startups, I tell people that my my work is is no longer about. I think earlier you talked about evangelizing the methodology. So it's it's not really doing that. I find it's more behavior psychology. So it's like, how do you get? Because people, you know, now know I've written books. They'll show me a lean canvas or their idea and ask me what I think, and. I often will say it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what your customers will think because for every idea out there, we can pick Starbucks. We can pick every idea out there. They're very smart investors and very smart people who thought it would never work. And so you can never judge an idea just on the basis of what someone thinks. Um, so my role, again, is not to tell people this is a good idea or a bad idea, but I can tell you how you can go and test it very quickly. I can, tell, I can share techniques and tactics with you but you still have to go do the work. And I, I, so that same technique is, you know, that, that I, you can see applied in, in the you know, kids in the Montessori school. That's pretty much the same technique that, that we apply even, or I, I apply in my work because that's, that's just the way to get people to learn things. Yeah, that's great. 
So what do you hope for, for the future of your kids then as they're going through this and teaching them and as you envision what they will do and become, what do, what do you hope for that? Yeah, so there's another great book which a number of your readers may have read. It's Strengths Finder. Um, yeah. I forget the author's name, but Mike or Mark's. Um, but, uh, but it's a great book because it begins to highlight that you know, people are built with certain strengths and weaknesses, and we are often told go and work on your weaknesses. But the big message in the book is that you want to identify your strengths and really amplify that and make that your unique value proposition. So if I go a bit, you know, if I get a bit geeky in the, in the lean canvas, there's a unique value proposition and applies even to individuals. So as every individual out there has some in, in, inert strengths and that's what you want to really amplify. So when, when, I, when I look at my kids, I, you know, we want to expose them to things and there are some basic things, you know, you've got to be able to do, like you've got to be able to read, you've got to be able to do basic arithmetic because uh, <laughs> otherwise you can't function. But beyond <laughs> that, um, there are going to be just natural tendencies. So again, I just find, and it's not a stereotype, but I just find that my son tends to like math more. My my daughter is a bookworm. She just likes likes to read. They they both can can do the other things, you know, to a sufficient level. But their passion is really in those areas. And so for us, it's really again like like what I was saying early on. It's really guiding them and helping them amplify those strengths while not not letting them get too far behind on the other things. There's a basic minimum criteria, a minimum level that everyone needs to get. But you want to really hone in on that. Um, and that, again, even applies all the way to adulthood. So I talked about how my, my previous life was in the software field, and I, was, you know, I would say I was a pretty good developer. Uh, but as I began to write, I actually discovered that I was a better writer than a coder. And in my business now, I write for fun, but I even tell you know, people on my team that don't expect me to do anything mission critical because I'll get interrupted, and you guys, just, you know, you guys are going to be better because I'm not keeping up with it. As with every skill, you have to keep up with it. Right. Um, so for me, I spend time every day writing uh, because that's the skill I want to continue to develop. And I don't try to read, you know, I don't try to stay on top of all the latest, you know, developer trends because, again, that's something I've decided is not what is going to be my strength necessarily going forward. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Um, thank you for that. Um, so in to kind of bring it back to a close, I think we, we, you said a lot of great stuff. So I, I thank you for that. And I'll definitely link up to those, um, books in the show notes. Um, but I, I typically ask, you know, every person I interview, like, what's your two cents, you know, it's two cent dad. Like what, what are your two cents that you would give to a new, a new father? That's maybe also a founder has a lot on his plate. Um, what, what would you say to that guy? Um, so again, I, I think people have, this may be something that people, people uh, have said many times, but I think it's really taking it one day at a time. Um, so I find that it's such an overwhelming thing. Yeah, I didn't, there's nothing you can do to prepare for it. Um, and again, as I mentioned, I was one of, just like I was a reluctant author, I was also a reluctant dad, but I was you know, ready for it. And when it came, um, it was one day to the next, but it was a life-changing event for me. Um, in the positive. It's like every, every day was, was, was very interesting. Um, to a lot of dads, I will say, if, you, if you know, some new dads there, you know, the first few months are, I didn't find them as interesting. It was a lot of work you have to do, but until the, the kids start interacting with you, that's where I find the difference between sometimes moms and dads. Dads tend to react more with, you know, the communication and the, seeing the kids grow and then seeing them, you know, kick their first soccer ball or start to walk or do physical things. You know, those three are very, very exciting. Um, and I just love to see how they develop, how their language develops, personalities develop. So again, it's one day at a time. Whenever I tell people, the kids, that my, the ages of my kids, 
everyone says that's a great age and I tell them that that's what everyone says and that have been saying you know all <laughs> years and I think every age is a great age because there's just new kind of challenges and new things to learn together so I look at it um, you know when I work with a startup I make it a two-way thing I don't want to be the the mentor giving um, I want to learn from the startup as well and I find that kids provide you that you can learn so much from them um, even about yourself and I think that's just what's very that's the gift that they give you that's awesome hey thank you so much for your time sure absolutely my pleasure thanks for listening to the show you can find out more about us and sign up to receive updates at twocentdad.com if you liked what you heard or just want to say hi you can shoot me an email at mike at twocentdad.com please leave a review on iTunes if you like the show it helps us to get the word out to the most people possible and the show is made possible through the support of EC Group International, building software teams since 1999.